So the scripture reading this morning is found in John chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, Truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come, came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Wanda, so much. If you didn't get your Bibles open yet, turn to John 10. love for you to join me there. Uh, it's a pretty powerful text today as we're getting into some, some of the unique things in the Gospel of John that John does specifically with his Gospel, and he includes these I am statements, right? He, there's seven of them in total throughout the Gospel of John, and so far we've only seen two of them. Who can remember, who's going to be the extra credit student, and can remember which two we've already seen so far? I am the... Ooh, there's one extra credit point. Where's the second one? Oh my goodness. Those are my heartstrings, by the way. So, so far we've got two. Chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. We've got one more this week and then another one next week that we're going to be looking at. And so Jesus prefaces these I am statements with using a, a simple language, using simple language and a simple illustration, a culturally relevant illustration to point out who he is, and how people can have life in his name. All right, so, so we're going to be looking at that. And the illustration, the metaphor, or the parable, you might say, is what? Sheep farming. Sheep herding, you might say. Verses 1 through 5, he gives this illustration of shepherding, or sheep herding, you might say, farming the sheep. When you think of sheep farming, what images come to your mind, right? What, what comes up? Maybe, maybe you saw that video of that sheep, I showed it a little while ago, that sheep that gets stuck in the rut, the shepherd comes and pulls them out, the sheep kind of frolics right back into the rut again, and that's pretty much us, right? And, and you think of that. Or, or you might think of like sheepdog competitions, right, where there's some, some old guy who's uh, got like a whistle or something, and he's calling calls or play, singing songs or whatever, and there's this sheepdog running around and corralling all sorts of sheep into the little pin, and they win a ribbon. That's some people. Or you think of the movie Babe. How many of you have seen the movie Babe? Babe, right? That'll do, pig. 
That'll do. It's the movie about a pig that identified as a sheepdog. I could make all sorts of comments about today. While there's, while there's some similarities with all of that we have in our head with the image that Jesus talks about, sheep farming in the first century Israel was very different than what we picture today. It's a bit different. So, so what we want to do is kind of just get rid of our understanding of it and, and, and really just take it of what Jesus says sheep farming looks like in verses 1 through 5. And that's going to help us make our observations and understanding more about what he means when he says, I am, and then what he fills in the blank there. But keep in mind the context. Keep in mind the context. Remember, John chapter 9, this man born blind had been radically healed by Jesus. He can see, and now he's, he, he gets interrogated, right? The, the, the Jews and the religious leaders are asking how this happened, and they're starting to get hostile towards him. But this healed guy continues to testify that Jesus healed him, that Jesus has to be a prophet at minimum. And he's this really important guy. And, and then he starts calling out how ridiculous these religious leaders are and these Jews are for not even just coming to the common sense conclusion. Yeah, Jesus has to be from God. That's, that's the, 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 the most common sense thing you can say in light of what's happened. And what do they do with him? They give him the boot. They kick him out. You're, you were born in sin. And they reject him, and he's, he, they basically are cutting him off from his relationship with God, or so they think, but they don't realize that God comes and finds him after, do they? And so Jesus finds this healed guy and calls him into worship and faith, and he believes in him, and then the Pharisees are there, and Jesus says something about being blind and, and being able to see, and the Pharisees are like, we're not blind, are we? And Jesus is like, actually, yeah, you are. You are spiritually blind. You can't even see it. And so, so here's what happens. He's talking about this spiritual blindness, being able to see, and then he goes, sheep! It's like a squirrel moment for Jesus, right? But listen to what Jesus says in verses 1 through 5. And I, I'm going to pause along the way and just kind of draw out some things as we go. Verse 1, he starts off, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. So, the sheep are in the pen for protection, right? Makes sense. And they're protected from the predators. These, these sheep pens often were bricks or stones stacked high and then had thistles and thorns uh, wrapped on the top. And, and, and they're also protected from the dangerous terrain. Guys, we have nice flat fields, but over in Israel, there are sheer cliffs that fall 40, 50 feet and will kill a sheep instantly if they fall off of them. So it's designed to protect the sheep in this way. And still, some, he talks about in this verse, in verse 1, that there are some who try to gain access into leading the sheep, and they're not gone through the gate, they've climbed over the fence. And he calls them thieves and robbers. Think about it. Somebody who climbs over the fence to get access to the sheep who didn't go through the gate, clearly doesn't have pure motives. It doesn't make sense for them to not go through the gate if they're not given authority or access by the gatekeeper. I mean, why else would someone climb into the pen any other way? And look at verse 2. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Well, duh. Obvious. Makes sense. Why would a true shepherd feel the need to climb into his own pen to gain access to his own sheep? Doesn't work. They're his sheep, so his motives are pure. He comes through the gate and he gets access to them. Verse 3, check it out. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out, the shepherd calls out to his own sheep by name 
and leads them out. So, so this has the image that the pen isn't just full of his own sheep. It is full of all sorts of different flocks. There's two or three different folds of sheep in there. So, so different owners would contract together and make their own pen, and they would come together and they would hire a gatekeeper for multiple flocks. So here we have one shepherd coming to this pen, and he comes up to the pen, and he calls out his own sheep, those that are already his. Now, sometimes this call was supposed to be like a simple call. Like, um, have you ever seen the fair where they do those uh, pig calls, those fake calls? Right? And they make all these really weird noises. Well, you, you, these shepherds have these own unique calls for their own sheep. So they'd make some sort of call. Sometimes they would sing to their sheep, and the sheep would recognize that and follow them. They'd probably sing Amazing Grace. I don't know. It wasn't written yet. Or sometimes some shepherds would play a flute. They would play some sort of musical instruments, and the sheep would recognize that and be drawn out of the pen and know it's their shepherd. But this text, Jesus says that the shepherd comes to the pen and he calls his sheep by name, every one of them by name. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had some sheep, it'd be like, hey, Titan, come here. Hey, Deborah, come on. Or, or Maximus Aurelius, come Hey, Bob, come on, right? You just got all sorts of names for your sheep. He calls every one of them by name, and they come out. They know their shepherd's voice, and they follow him as he leads them out of the pen. And then look at verse 4. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. So the shepherd leads them out of the pen because there's no actual food in there unless they were to bring it in for them. There's no real water provided there. So he leads them out of the pen. And, and notice his position. Notice where he is. He's not behind them driving them with some sort of threat or a sheepdog. He's actually in front of them. They're following him and he's calling to them. He's, he might be singing his song. He might be playing his instrument, and they're just listening to his voice, listening to his music, and they're following their shepherd. He's ahead of them, and they recognize that it's him. And then look at verse 5. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Have you ever tried to, I don't know if you know any sheep herders or farmers that have their own flock, but if you were to go try to do the exact same call, use whatever the same words that their shepherd would use, they still wouldn't follow you because they know the unique voice of their shepherd. Strangers that try to come in and lead the flock, true sheep will not follow them. They won't be following them. The true sheep of the shepherd will run away from those strangers and their, their efforts to lead the flock will be unsuccessful because the sheep will know, nah, that's not my shepherd. So that's the illustration Jesus gives. That's the basis for this whole chapter. Just the basic image of sheep herding and, and farming. And so you can look at this illustration and you can look at the different elements of it. You've got some thieves and robbers. You've got uh, the sheep pen. You've got the gate, right? You've got the sheep themselves. You've got a gatekeeper. You've got the shepherd who comes. All these different elements. And, and sure, it's a pretty easy thing to understand. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I get that that's what shepherding looked like in the first century Israel. And it's a beautiful picture of care, 
of a shepherd for his flock. But it's not standing by itself. You've got to put it right back into the context that we're in. Remember, the blind guy healed got rejected because he testified about the nature of Jesus. Put it back in what just happened. This blind guy's spiritually alone. He's been rejected and cast aside. And how on earth does sheep farming relate to that? So that's actually why we get to verse 6. Take a look at what it happens. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, or paramoion, uh, which uh, is John's use of the word for kind of like parables. But they did not understand what he was telling them. They didn't get it. They didn't get the point. So, so here's what's happening. They understood the nature of shepherding. They, that, was, that was understood. They could see it in their, in, down their street. Oh, there goes Jim with his flock, right? He's singing his song or calling to them, right? They knew that. They knew how it worked. They just couldn't grasp why on earth Jesus would all of a sudden go, Sheep! In light of the context, doesn't make sense to them. What spiritual points are, are he making? And so this is where we need to be careful, right? We who often find ways to distort things uh, and, and what they mean. So it's very easy for us, and you can see it happen a lot, to take Jesus' parables and illustrations and make points and connections to them that aren't supposed to be there. So, for example, you've got pastors who take the, the parable of the mustard seed, right? That small little seed that when you plant it in the garden, it becomes the, the largest bush or tree in the garden itself. And they'll take that and they'll say, that seed that you sow is your financial investment in my ministry. And when you give it, you will reap a harvest like none before. Mm. You can do all sorts of stuff with Jesus' parables if you want to abuse what he says. You could use this text, I'm not trying to get political, you could use this text and make arguments about the immigration and the border control issues. You shouldn't be climbing over the fence to get into the Americas. you got to go in through the gate. Is this text about immigration issues? Absolutely not. So we don't use it for that. Or we could twist it to talk about papal authority. Oh, there's a gatekeeper, the Pope, right? No, it's not, it's not this. We don't get to twist this text to whatever we want. Because almost every time Jesus gives a parable, he tells you exactly what connections he wants you to make for it. So the parable of the sower with the seeds in the four different fields, he explains to the disciples exactly what that's supposed to be. The parable of the mustard seed, he says that that's the kingdom. He tells us exactly what it is. So we don't have to go wandering off into our own interpretations of these parables. Jesus gives us the points. And so we see Jesus do that here. Here's the illustration. Here's the context for which I want you to be thinking. And then he makes two I am statements. Two points about the reality of who he is in his innermost self from those illustrations. The first one he says here in verse 7. Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the what? The gate for the sheep. Your translation might have door, might have gate. They're used interchangeably in the context of sheep and shepherding. Gate kind of makes sense, but your translation says door because that's also how it's used elsewhere in the home, uh, referring to the doors that you allow access to the next space, which is exactly what gates and doors ultimately do. So Jesus is saying, I am the gate, or I am the door. In other words, he is the access point to the space. 
that it's protecting. And unless it was some sort of special case, uh, most often every sheep pen only had one access point, one gate, one door, one point of access to get into the fold. And so you know that old Christian saying, um, I, I, I haven't really heard it too recently, but, but uh, where, 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 the, where God closes a door, he opens a window. Yeah, not here. Not here. There, there's no window. There's nothing else to climb into. You try to get in through the window, you're a robber and a thief. So you just got to go through the gate here. There's only one of them, one access point. And here Jesus of Nazareth is saying, I am the gate. Notice he doesn't say gatekeeper, he says the gate. We can get to the gatekeeper next week. But he's the gate. Now obviously Jesus isn't a door with hinges and a latch, right? Like not literally, but he spiritually, in the reality of who he is, he is the gate. And in verses 7 through 8, he says it twice. I am the gate in verse 7. And in verse 8, I am the gate. Or verse 9, I am the gate. Sorry, verse 7 and 9. He says it twice, and each time he says it, he's expanding. He's, he's making connections from the illustration of shepherding to who he is twice. And so we're going to look at each one of them, two applications. And the first one we can see in verses 7 and 8. Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. Okay. Connect back to the illustration Jesus just mentioned. Anyone who tries to get access to the sheep, to lead them, who go into the sheepfold any other way than the gate, they are thieves and robbers. And then he says, all who came before me, in verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. So Jesus is talking about those who try to get into the fold of the sheep to lead the sheep but they don't go through the gate. He's talking about Israel's leaders, which are often throughout Scripture referred to as shepherds. Leaders of Israel who try to lead the sheep, but they didn't come in through the gate. So Jesus is referring to abusive leaders of the people of Israel throughout Israel's history and even calling them out right here, right now, to their faces. Now, when he says, all who came before me, obviously we're not talking about guys like Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah, like all these who actually had gone through the gate, who have been commissioned by God, sent from God into the sheepfold to lead. They went through the gate, but he's not referring to them. He's referring to those who have misled the sheep. Now, if you are familiar with any of Israel's history, you'll be like, oh yeah, that, duh, there were tons of that. Terrible kings who got into authority and power. Terrible priests who used the temple for their own gain. In fact, in Ezekiel 34, if you were to read through it, you'd find that to be a pretty hard passage, especially if you're a shepherd in a church right, or a pastor of a church. Ezekiel 34, God condemns the religious leaders of Israel. He called them shepherds, but he condemns them for their many abuses of his sheep. This is the th some of the things he says. He says that the shepherds have left the sheep exposed. He says they forced them to fend for themselves. He says they've even killed the sheep for their wool and their meat. 
Now, I've, I've skipped a few slides. Let me jump to the text from Ezekiel 34. You eat the fat, talking to the shepherds, you eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend to the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays or sought the lost. Instead, shepherds, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. So those who enter the sheepfold to lead the sheep by another way than by going through the gate are thieves and robbers, and they've got terribly twisted motives. In fact, you can see those motives. Look at verse 10. Very popular verse that often gets quoted. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, when you're looking at that passage, when you think about it, when you actually quote it, who do we often refer to with that text? That snake. Satan, right? Satan is who we often point this towards, that lion who's seeking someone to devour. But given the context, this verse is not referring to Satan, though he is somebody who steals and kills and destroys. But it's not Satan that Jesus is calling out here. Given the context, it's the religious leaders, it's the Pharisees those who are attempting to lead the sheep of God, but not having gained access or been authorized through the gate that is Jesus. These, think about it, these Pharisees are the ones who couldn't even find it within themselves to celebrate when a blind guy can see. What are they concerned about most? He broke the Sabbath rules that we made. Not that God gave us, but the ones we made. He broke it. These Pharisees are the ones who are concerned about people keeping their own man-made rules for the Sabbath. They're the ones who get enraged, and they're the ones who are calling Jesus, the Son of God, evil for healing a man and, and turning back the curse that came with the fall. They're the ones who have abusively cast out someone who had just been transformed by the grace of God, a sheep cast out of the flock. They're shouting, no, we don't need the gate. We have the law. Guys, the Gospels are riddled with examples of poor, ungodly leadership from religious leaders in Israel. And we're talking about people in Jesus' day. In Luke 16, it says that the Pharisees were people who were greedy for money. And in fact, in that same verse, it says that they mock Jesus openly. In, in, in Mark 12, it says that the religious leaders take advantage of the poor widows. And it also says that they pray long to get everyone's attention. In Matthew 21, it tells us that these Pharisees had turned God's temple into a den of thieves. And ultimately, the biggest sign, like, like you know that saying, here's your sign, they kill Jesus. They steal, they kill, and they destroy. 
I'm not talking about all religious leaders. We know there were tons of religious leaders throughout Israel's history that were excellent, that sought after God's heart, but there were tons that were terrible and terrifying. And Jesus is saying here, I'm the gate. And in that, he's supposed to be, he is intentionally calling out the wicked spiritual leaders who don't access the leadership of the sheep through him, and they're attempting to lead the sheep under their own authority and under their own motives. And here's the thing, there are still an incredible amount of thieves today who are attempting and have crawled into the fold over the fence and not gone through the gate to try to lead the people of God. There are still thieves today who try to lead the church and do it with really twisted, ungodly motives. Motives to extort and to extract. Motives to steal. Motives to abuse and to manipulate and to damage and to plunder. And guys, the examples are endless. I've got a few. You've got, I mentioned it earlier, those prosperity gospels who tell you, hey, you make an investment into my ministry, you're going to get your miracle. Right, You get your miracle, sow the seed, do it, and then so that way they can really just roll around in their, uh, in their own plane and have their three mansions all over the country. Or what about those pastors whose leadership at its best is abusive, who just simply use the flock to build up their own empire and get rid of anybody who gets in the way and throws them under the bus. By the way, I'm actually quoting examples from pastors who spoke this way. Or you have pastors and shepherds and religious leaders today, not endorsed by God, who are morally legalistic, who demand obedience in the sense that it's the way you gain access and blessing to God. That His love and blessings are only contingent upon your best performance and restricted when you fail. You also have shepherds or leaders trying to gain access to the flock who are twisted, culturally bent pastors who come into the church saying that, oh, the best thing that you can do for yourself is to express yourself, your innermost being. Whatever you feel, that's what you need to do because that's the best version of yourself. They say things like, like our God is a transgender God. They say things like, like they get up in front of the flock of Jesus and they apologize to the church on behalf of God because God designed humanity, male and female. They, I'm quoting here. They literally get up and say, God, I wish, I, God, I wish you would have done something different with that. If, if there was, like, why couldn't you have done something where there was something like in the middle, like, you know, an A, B, C, and D, not just A and B. I'm quoting here. Instead of pastors who just humbly agree that God's designs are ultimately best, that he can get it better than us, and that his ways are higher, we can't get it better than God. All of these and so many more, they sound like thieves and robbers. Not here to echo the voice of Jesus, but to lead with their own motives. They're attempting to lead the sheep 
but they haven't gained access to the sheep through the gate they've climbed in. Any true shepherd of God's people will enter by Jesus alone. Now, the big question you probably are asking is, well, how can I tell? How am I supposed to know? How can, how can you, the sheep, know if your shepherd has access leading you through the gate with the endorsement and the authority of Jesus? How do you know? Well, the text tells us, and I'm just going to simply put it this way. Listen and look at his voice and motives. Listen and look at his voice and motives. So his voice, not like the tones or the fluctuations or the accent, I'm not talking about that, but what he says, does he sound like Jesus? Does his voice echo the voice of Jesus? You know, the only way that you can tell that is if you're familiar with the voice of Jesus. You've got to know this. You've got to study this. This has to be in you so that if somebody gets up before you and is attempting to lead you, you're like, that's, that's not Jesus. That doesn't sound like my Jesus, at least the one I know here. But when somebody does get up before you who has gone through the gate and speaks, and you say, oh, there, that's, that's my Jesus. He's, he's talking like my Jesus. I know that voice. I know that truth. So you have to be relentless to know this really well. Be relentless to get this into here. Memorize it so that you can meditate on it. Meditate on it so that you can be saturated by it. And then you'll recognize Jesus' voice through your shepherd if it is there. Not only that, but you have to check his motives too. And guys, I've got to tell you that motives are not easy to, to figure out. You can't judge motives based on a one-time circumstance or a, a, a maybe a, a, a one failure, right? You just can't do that. You have to look at, a, at circumstances over a long period of time, and you have to be very, very careful with this. You can't really know motives on the face value. I mean, perhaps your pastor's just having a bad day. You know, pastors can't have those. We do have failings and shortcomings. So you have to look long and hard over a long period of time with multiple circumstances. And that can reveal intentions. It can reveal character. So pay attention to that. But either way, his voice and his motives have to center on Jesus who is the gate. In fact, there's one commentator who said it this way, and I really enjoyed what he said. He said, the final test of a shepherd's credentials is his fidelity to the leadership of Jesus. That's it. Now, um, I'm preaching this, right? And I realize that I'm in the role of your shepherd. So this is kind of risky business for me, if I can be honest. Put me in the crosshairs, right? Come examine. Uh, Inviting examination brings judgment. So uh, uh, to encourage it, uh, it's kind of risky for me. but, But I would much prefer that you guys be well cared for than for me to be comfortable. So just be gentle with me. I've got a pretty strong heart, but it can only take so much. So that's the first point. And it's noon. I'm sorry. It's the first point. He's the gate, so the shepherds of the sheep have to access them by him alone. 
But Jesus goes on to expand it to another point, and we're going to do this because we're taking the Lord's Supper, and you're going to see exactly how this connects. Look at verse 9. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. Amen? Amen. Now, now, this is now a point for the sheep, not just simply the shepherds of the sheep, but the sheep themselves, how to access the safety and the protection and the provision of the sheep pen under the care of the shepherd. So Jesus is the gate. In other words, he's the only access point for the sheep. He's the only one. Psalm 118 verse 20 says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter by it. It's Jesus. This is why Jesus later on says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me is what he says. So Jesus is the access point for salvation from the dangers of the wilderness and the peril of it and the lostness of our own souls. He's the only access for freedom from that. I can't help but have in my mind when I read this and when I think about this, the image of, the, of Noah and the ark and the flood, right? Think about it. Just think of the picture. This, this flood's coming. It's going to cleanse the world of all wickedness, but he's going to preserve a remnant, Noah and his family. And then two by two, all these animals come. And, and, and Noah's instructed to build the ark, and he's given specific instruction in John, uh, Genesis 6.16 to put, to put the door on the side of it, just one door, one access point in this whole ark. Right? And God provides access and safety for those who he invites to come into it. And, and it was Noah and his family. And Noah and, the, 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 and his family get in there, and, the, and the, the animals get in there, and the flood bursts forth from the depths, and the rains begin to fall. And look at what Genesis 7:16 says. Those that entered, male and female, of every creature, entered just as God had commanded them. Then the Lord shut them in. The Lord picked up the door and closed it and protected his flock. He protects those in the ark from the judgment. Now, how many of you have ever heard of or been to the ark encounter? Raise your hand. Yeah, cool. Awesome experience? Yeah, everybody's shaking their head, right? So you guys might know this. On the, in the ark experience, there's a main door on the, on, uh, to enter into the ark itself. It's this massive door. And you know, one of the things that they've done is they've shadowed the cross onto the door. To enter into the safety of the ark, you have to go through the door. And that is exactly who Jesus is. He is the door that gives us access to the safety from the coming judgment. Jesus is the door. We go through him alone. And actually when we do, it says that we're given four things. If you have your notes, you should be writing by now. I hope you have enough to be writing. Uh, so here's the first thing that we're given when we go through the gate. Let's see if this works. First, rescue from sin and death. Can you say that? Rescue from sin and death. Look at verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved. saved. That's not an ancient word. It's here. It's in this book. We're saved. It means that we're delivered safe and sound. We're not lost anymore. We're not wandering in the wilderness. So how else are we supposed to be saved from ourselves? How else are we supposed to be saved from the dangers of the world? How else are we supposed to be saved from sin and brokenness? It's only going to be by Jesus, the gate. So he gives us rescue from sin and death. Secondly, he gives us protection and freedom. Can you say that? Look at verse 9. He keeps going. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out. 
Guys, too many people think that Jesus simply wants to lock you into his sheepfold and keep you bound. Always in his cage of boring rules and laws and rule keeping. Never to know the fields of joy. Oh, no, 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 no. We're kept in the safety of the pen and then we're released out into pasture. That's freedom. That is absolute freedom. That is not bondage. And it's not just freedom, but we're led out and under the protection of the shepherd. We're led out under his protection. He goes with us into the fields. So isn't that a blessing that to know in our freedoms, we have our shepherd walking with us, guarding our lives? Remember Psalm 23, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we won't fear any evil. Why? Because our shepherd is with us. So we have rescue from sin and death. We have protection in freedom. We're also given, thirdly, provision that satisfies. Can you say that with me? Provision that satisfies. Where are we let out into in verse 9? He says, we come in and we go out to find what? Pasture. To find pasture. To be fed in the fields of luscious green grass. To be nourished by streams of living water. To have our souls restored. Guys, so going through the gate... That is, Jesus is not designed to rob you of satisfaction in life. It's meant to lead you right to it. It's only there you'll actually find it, such that when you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all those things that you need and worry about will be added to you. So you don't have to worry. So we're given rescue, we're given protection and freedom, we're given provision that satisfies, and then fourthly, oh my goodness, we are given what? Abundant life. Can you say abundant life? Verse 10, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. That's in the context of Jesus being the gate. And this abundance life isn't like an abundance of life in the sense that you have eternal life, that it just goes, keeps going on and on. No, abundant life means that you have life to the full. You have it to the max. You have it to the uttermost. You have life at its best. So in the context of the sheep image, which is what this text is all about, life to the full, life to the abundance suggests fat Contented, flourishing, well-nourished sheep that are not terrorized by bandits. So you have all these things. And Jesus is saying here, if you want to get this, if you want access to this, if you want to be rescued from sin and death, if you want to be protected and free, if you want to be provided for and satisfied, if you want living life at its best, then my goodness, you have to go through the gate. And that gate is Jesus. He's the only access point. You can't get it anywhere else. You can't go through anyone else. Only here, only in Jesus of Nazareth. Only in Christ alone. So I'm going to close with this. Did you notice who he said could come through the gate? Verse 9. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me. Anyone can enter. Regardless of who you are, regardless of race, your current struggles, your record, 
your past, your current struggles or temptations, your current doubts, or how far you feel from God, the gate is open to you. And you can come. Anyone can come because Jesus is the gate. And so with that, we know that our access to these incredible blessings through Jesus alone come, came by his death and resurrection. And so today, because of the, the, the narrow way that is Jesus being the way to abundant life, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And just real quick, uh, the Lord's Supper is, is an ordinance or a sacrament given by the Lord on the night of his betrayal before his death. And he gave it to his disciples as a means by which we're supposed to be calling out to one another the death of our Lord Jesus in the partaking of the elements. So one of the things that the instructions given to us for the Lord's Supper we find in 1 Corinthians 11 is that this supper is for those specifically who have gone in through the gate. Not those who are on the outside, not those who have attempted to climb in, but simply those who are of the flock of Jesus, those who have gone through the gate. And so I'm doing that because if you're here today and you've not gone through the gate that is Jesus, I would say that first, this table isn't directly for you, but my goodness, like uh, the the gate's open. Why not come? If you want rescue, if uh, if you want freedom and protection, if you want provision for your life, if you want life at its best, the gate's open. Jesus is letting you in. And if that be you today, if you so choose to go through the gate and give your life to Jesus, the table is absolutely for you. One of the things that we're told to do in Scripture as well is that we're not to take this lightly or rushed. Given the time, we definitely need to be careful about that second one, right? We can't rush through this because this is one of the most precious gifts that the church has been given, the visible words of the gospel consumed. The nearest we get Jesus is in this. His body and his blood we partake of. And so one of the things that we're supposed to do at this time is we're not to rush through this, but we're to examine our hearts. We're to invite this presence of the Lord, his spirit to come and, and, and like point out the things that are not under his submission and, and, and authority and, and, and invite him to take control and and confess what we need to confess. And that might not just simply be with him, but we're also to not come to this table having a grudge in our heart against somebody close to us, a spouse or, or a friend. So you're, you're, you're invited to in this time that we're about to have where uh, we're preparing the elements to, to go to someone that you've been wronged by or have wronged and to confess it and to, and to reconcile with them before you come to this and partake. And so what we're about to do, we're going to have uh, Luke come up, and he's going to play some music for us. And I'm going to invite all of you to, to, to bow in your head and, and reflect in prayer. Um, but before, before we do that, there's going to be some instructions with how to come. Uh, so we're going to have our, our, some of our ushers here offering the elements uh, to come get them, come through these aisles, and then you can go back to your seats on the outside or the middle aisles. 
Um, if there's somebody next to you who uh, could use your help in getting the elements, feel free to offer to come and get them for them and take them back to them so they don't have to get up. Let's love one another well with that. But again, at this time, if you guys would just bow your heads in prayer and, and reflect and examine your hearts, and, and then we'll, uh, I'll invite you to come when we're ready.